Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Transcript Podcast. You've got me, Scott Krisloff. I'm editor of the Transcript, along with Eric Mokaya, who's our lead author. We sent out a new issue of the newsletter yesterday. And last week, the biggest event, which I'm sure all of our listeners have seen already, was that the Fed met and raised interest rates by another 75 basis points. So another large increase. Jerome Powell reiterated his hawkish stance from Jackson Hole, talked about moving to a restrictive monetary policy. I think for the first time that I really keyed on in on at least, and talked about how we're just barely getting to a restrictive stance. The FOMC members were forecasting a 4%, above 4% short-term rate by the end of the year, which I think is high. More hawkishness from the Fed. Eric, any thoughts? Yeah, I think also that's the same thing that I picked. I think just a, just a reiteration of the Jackson Hole conference, which marked a significant turning point for the Fed in terms of the thought process that they have around inflation, that they held bent on going all the way to make sure that inflation comes down. It was quite interesting that the first thing he said in this, after the, in the just before the Q&A was that my main message here has not changed since Jackson Hole. We're going to do everything to bring down inflation. There is a chapter that I've been looking at from Bank of America about inflation and how long it takes to bring down inflation once it's above the 5% level. The chart clearly shows that on average, it takes around 10 years to bring that inflation back down to the Fed target of around 2%. They gave reference to countries like Greece, where it took 28, 28 years plus, Italy, Portugal, Spain, where it took them around, uh, I think, eight, 16 to 18 years in the 1980s. The key takeaway from the chart is obviously that it may take us quite a while to get back to the 2% level that the Fed wants the inflation to be. And that would maybe actually looking at rates, which may be higher for longer. But also there's a quote at the end, which was from Stanley Druckenmiller, who was talking about when I think he saw Paul Volcker in the 70s or 80s, when the inflation was pretty high. He thought the guy was maniacal in terms of the focus he had on bringing down inflation, hell bent on taking interest rates as much as 20% to make sure that inflation, which was then around 12%, would come down as much as possible. When you listen to... Jerome Powell these past two months, and especially after Jackson Hole, you get the same feeling that he is really keen to use everything in his power to bring down inflation? He's certainly signaling that. Something about it, I still don't totally believe that the Fed is going to be to act as aggressively as it says it's going to. And that's probably just how we're all trained after this long period of easy money. I think that it, therein lies the divergence that you're seeing in capital markets, where the Fed is saying that they're going to be very aggressive at tightening, and capital markets still aren't really fully listening to them. And here's the important point. I think the most important thing that I read from the press conference was Jerome Powell, it was like a sub-comment, was saying that real rates should be positive across the curve, which if we're running at 6.5% inflation, 65 plus. If the 10-year treasury yield needs to be above 6.5%, you're talking about, let's even say it has to be at 6.5%. What type of equity premium are you going to put on, on that for equities? A couple hundred basis points? And then what's the multiple of the S&P 500 based on that? And you're talking about something like 12 and a half, 13 times earnings multiple compared to a 19 times earnings multiple now. That's a big gap. And so that's a pretty back of the envelope analysis, but it really, if the Fed is having a tough time containing the inflation, if you think that the long-term inflation rate right now is four, five, six, whatever percentage you're seeing, equities aren't close to pricing that in. And that 
is a, a scary situation for capital markets. So then heading into Q4, at least, then you'd expect capital markets actually, if they are to reflect the sentiment of the Fed, or I think the intentions of the Fed, that they, they need to go down from where they are currently. So it could be headed for another slump in terms of capital market performance going forward. But something as they noted, at least, because uh, something as it happened last week, is that the big bank CEOs were in front of the Congress are being grilled on various aspects. And uh, I think the general agreement is as the economic growth uh, rate has grown, slowed down this month. They can see that in various pockets. And especially the part that they highlighted the most was the housing markets, where they're seeing a significant slowdown. And again, that's something that the Fed referenced. That's one area of the market that are keenly watching in terms of seeing if it reflects the intentions in terms of slowing down the economic engine so they can tone a slowdown in inflation at the same time. So any other thoughts, especially from the Fed, also that anything that you may take away? Yeah, I think the bank CEOs talking about the economy starting to slow. And we saw Lennar also had a very negative statement about the state of the housing markets as interest rates have been rising. I think that the economy is slowing. And the part that is scary, should be scariest for capital markets is the Fed doesn't seem to really care. In fact, the Fed is trying to engineer a slowdown in the economy. The title of our newsletter this week was No Painless Way to Do That. And that was referencing what Jerome Powell was saying. I wish there was a painless way to do this, but there's not. And so the Fed is, is ready to accept a slowing economy, ready to accept higher unemployment rate ready to accept having maintaining tighter monetary policy, restrictive monetary policy for a prolonged period of time. And so my question is, what's going to change the Fed's mind? It has to be a pretty severe economic shock beyond what they're expecting in order to change their mind or change their stance. And perhaps one of the things that the Fed, but first of all, when now when I heard the comment of this, there's no way we're going to avoid having pay a, a painful period as we try to do what we're doing. I had that in mind, Jerome Powell more as a doctor telling you like, okay, this surgery has to cause a little bit of pain. There's no way to remove this kind of cancer from your body without causing you pain. So one of the areas that they are watching very carefully is of course, slowing down inflation and two comments, I think from Costco and from Autozone about their pockets of the market where they're seeing inflation actually slowing down. In certain regards, do you take that very seriously in terms of that we at peak inflation? Because this is a, that's something that a lot of people are also watching very closely, where we are past peak and whether the commodities, which have been falling for the past couple of months, whether that just comes to reflect in terms of the pricing of some of the products that are out there. It certainly seems like inflation is slowing down. You would expect inflation to be slowing down in response to the Fed policy, but in the past few months, the inflation readings have been surprising to me because I would have expected it to be slowing down and already showing up in, in the date. But it does still feel like there's an inflationary psychology. We're not in the deflationary psychology like we were five years ago. And so I think this is actually what the Fed is fighting is the inflationary psychology. And it remains to be seen how they'll do it breaking that. To be clear, the inflation psychology is where everybody's thinking about inflation, so they're incorporating in terms of the decision making that they're doing day to day in terms of businesses, in terms of people asking for higher well, wage increases. So all everyone's thinking about inflation at the same time. 
So when that becomes entrenched, it actually becomes a bigger problem for the Fed to deal with because the prices could be going down. But unless people actually think that inflation is going down, the Fed has its work cut out in terms of reducing the inflation expectations of people going forward. So maybe a few other things that maybe stood out is, of course, what did I see? I think one was the quote that you highlighted, which was also for the premium subscribers about traditional automakers lacking leverage in electric vehicles, especially now that the internal combustion engines are, are going to be a thing of the past. One thing that struck me about the quotes was that I've also been reading a bit of the autobiography of Henry Ford. And in it, of course, the early beginnings of how the car and the impressive way in which apparently in the early 1900s, the combustion engine was actually competing with electric vehicles back then. And he, Henry Ford, chose to focus on the internal combustion engine. And everyone else was actually focusing on the electric vehicle. And for the next hundred years, of course, what turns out is that with the benefit of instance, now we can see that the internal combustion engine won in the end. So this now brings us back again to almost a hundred years later, 120 years later. Again, it's the EV versus the combustion engine, but now it looks like everybody's again bent on making sure that the EV, or the electric vehicles work. But then this time, the internal combustion engines doesn't have the benefits of actually having leverage, especially in the battery department, which is a key battleground going forward for what I'm seeing and from reading the earnings calls. Any takeaways from that section, especially to do with the auto and stuff? I did have one thought on this recently, which was actually in relation to the streaming video services that we've followed for a long time, where for a long time, Netflix was the first mover in streaming video. And there was like a period of 18 months to two years, probably once Disney Plus came out, where it was clear that competition was building and yet it wasn't really reflected in the competitive dynamics yet within the streaming video space. And I think now certainly Netflix is starting to reflect the fact that there's intense competition in streaming video. And we're actually seeing that as consumers, lots of avenues where you can get good streaming video content. The electric vehicle space feels like that kind of on a two-year lag as well, where right now still the company with the greatest mindshare in electric vehicles is Tesla by a mile. But so many companies are investing in their electric vehicle capabilities, the existing companies, the existing automakers. And then also these startup automakers are also trying to produce electric vehicles. And so really the statement is for Tesla primarily that I think probably all of us will be driving electric vehicles by the end of the decade. Tesla's monopolistic share of the market or mind share within capital markets of electric vehicles may start to see a lot more competition as this is coming about. Maybe we're six months into the start of the real competitive phase for Tesla and maybe it's 12 months away, 18 months away where all of a sudden you're looking around and going, oh, I have 12 different electric car options. And I actually really like this one in some ways more than the Tesla. So it's, it's in one thing, one more thing that I learned from the Henry Ford autobiography was also that he chose to do, to make only the Model T. So I think like he only chose the one model, the black Model T. That's all. That was what he was going to manufacture at scale. But then his competitors came in and then they were like, okay, we want to produce a variety of cars at the same time for everyone to use. And you see that with now with Tesla. Tesla's been focusing on a few models, like Model T. And then you have all these guys who are like, the Volvo are coming with a range of vehicles for everyone wants. So if you want a long-range battery car, if you want a short-range battery car, you get that. 
are from them. So it feels like we are back to the beginning again of the battle between EVs and combustion engines and all these couple companies. Yeah, yeah. I think that history is really interesting and especially the competition between Ford and General Motors at the time. Ford was the dominant player in the automobile, which was basically the high-tech good of that era. Ford, I really have always seen the analogy between Ford and Apple and Henry Ford and Steve Jobs and the iPhone and everything else of just like, we've got our flagship product, basically. General Motors was, I think, to me, more analogous to Google, where you have a breadth of product lines and a breadth of options to really capitalize on on the broad manufacturing capabilities that were coming to fore at that time, which Google, again, is basically just a machine of software engineers that are taking advantage of the internet. Yeah, it's an interesting, a fascinating time to be studying Henry Ford. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting book. I'll include a link to the show and to the book itself. Thank you for joining us. As always, it's Scott and I, Eric, really happy to have you. I'll be with us every week. So we'll take a short break and then we'll be back in two weeks for the earnings season. So looking forward to giving you and drawing insights from the earnings calls and uh, sending them out in our newsletter and sharing them in our podcast also. So keep being a subscriber and thank you for joining us once again. Bye. Thank you.